Everybody, it's your girl E, and this is season two of The Call, where we speak to wildly inspiring and interesting women about their journey to answer their life's calling. So for the first order of business, before I tell y'all how much I missed you, I have news. It's season two of The Call, and we have sponsors, y'all. Yes, that rhymed. I worked really, really hard on that. Episode one of season two is brought to you by Juice Beauty. Here on the call, we talk a lot about inner beauty and the health of our souls, our careers, our lives, and the world. Well, Juice Beauty's founder, Karen Benke, believes that we shouldn't have to sacrifice any of those to look really good on the outside, too. They offer high-performance skincare and vibrant makeup made with antioxidant-rich organic ingredients. And a big part of their mission is sourcing from USA Organic Farms so that every organic drop feeds your skin. You should check them out for your skincare and makeup needs by going to juicebeauty.com slash the call and signing up for emails to enjoy a very special offer on your first order. So go do that after listening to this really great episode. Y'all, I missed you so, so much. I legit did. (laughs) I hope in these past few months since season one, you've been crushing it, stepping up and doing something every day to answer your call and change the world. Ever since I made the commitment to do that in my own life, which for me included entrepreneurship and being an independent creative, I've been obsessively looking to connect with women who are doing the same, who are building something in the world and then using that something to make an impact. Well, my first guest is one of those women. Melody Asani is one of very few successful women in an overwhelmingly male corner of the design world, streetwear. She's the only woman with a storefront on Fairfax, which is considered the streetwear mecca of the country. Her bold B-girl jewelry, clothes, shoes, and other accessories have made her a favorite with some of your faves. Solange, Lauren Hill, Gwen Stefani, Erica Badu, the lovely ladies of HBO's Insecure. And while she doesn't consider herself a political figure, she doesn't even like politics. She's been using her brand to respond to the current moment. I've had different messages through my work, and a lot of it has been like really trying to mirror women with these questions or these scenarios of like, hey, if I do this, do you see yourself now? Or if I ask you this, does that wake you up now? Her newest campaign can be summed up with the quote from Egyptian activist Wael Gonim, which is embroidered on one of her shirts. The power of the people is greater than the people in power. But Melody didn't always dream of being a businesswoman or a designer or even an outspoken it girl, which she is. She's all those things now. But when she was younger, the daughter of Persian immigrants, she, like many of us, thought that her career would be more traditional, more linear. So I would probably be in an office. I'd be wearing pantyhose. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, pantyhose. Yes. And kitten heels. Until she followed her call. And now years later into her career, she's finally answering another call to take her brand and her business even bigger and be more vocal about her beliefs and how she thinks the world should look. But how hard is that? And what did it cost her? In our interview, we discuss that and so many other things, how she responds to the voice in her head that constantly tells her to play it small. She shares a surprising thing that will get someone immediately fired from her company. And my favorite, how not knowing the rules actually makes it much easier to break them. This one is for all of you all who have a talent, a gift, and a dream that you want to pursue, but maybe you're afraid to take it to the next level. Melody is going to inspire you, I promise. 
So sit back and enjoy this conversation with my girl, Melody Asani, on the call. Melody! Erica! (laughs) Thank you for being on the call. Thank you. I'm so happy to talk to you because you have a fascinating and amazing life. Thanks. Do you think you do? Um, Sometimes. Uh (laughs) (laughs) But the life that you have now is so far removed uh, from what you thought you would have or what you thought you'd be doing when you were a child or a teenager or even in college, right? Like this is miles away. What did you think you were going to be doing? I thought that I was going to basically make my parents happy for the rest of my life. So I thought I would have some kind of very linear job. I just thought it's what you do. Mm -hmm. So I would probably be in an office. I'd be wearing pantyhose. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, pantyhose. Yes. And kitten heels. And, yeah, because I just thought that that's what you have to do. Mm -hmm. Did your parents in any way kind of shape that in you? Or is it just kind of like what you observed in the world? Like, were there expectations put on you? Like, we expect you to do this? In some sense, yeah. They were both artists, and I think that both of them didn't succeed in their art in Mm -hmm. the way that they imagined. Mm -hmm. So there was sort of this thing of, like, that's that's just a hobby. We don't do that because Mm -hmm. that doesn't... It's not practical. And then um, my father actually passed away when I was 10, Mm -hmm. and after he passed away, I kind of took his role on in a way. So I kind of became my dad in the household and so I got a job when I was 13 I think was my first job and I was getting paid under the table working at Hagen dazs <laughs> <laughs> and I think I took on this responsibility that I kind of wish somebody at the time would have been like chill you you don't have to do this I'm giving you this face because <laughs> my father passed away when I was 16 mm. And when I tell you, I've said that a thousand times, I said, I feel like I kind of turned into my father yeah. um, in, in all of the amazing and good ways because I admired him and loved him so much. But also I felt a level of responsibility, like I had to fill this role yeah. that I wish someone had told me. And honestly, my mother probably did try to tell me, but I was very headstrong yeah. um, that I didn't have to do that. You know what I mean? Yeah. I guess that's a common experience. Yeah. It's very strange. But in a lot of ways, it was really great because it did make me feel very motivated and determined and responsible. So there was a lot of things that I didn't do that other kids would do. Like what? Um, like drink or, you mm-hmm, know, I just mm-hmm. didn't take risks because I felt like I was holding this post of like, well, nothing can happen to me because my mom has already suffered so much. I can't do anything else Yeah, <laughs> kind yeah. of thing. Same thing, same exact thing. So you felt that pressure and that responsibility. And at that time, what you thought that meant was that you were going to have kind of like a good, quote unquote, responsible day job. Did you know yet what that was? Did you have any ambitions? Yeah, I think that I wanted to be in law at some point. That became very strong for me where I knew that justice was something that I was passionate about. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go to law school. And the idea of going to law school I knew would bring, like, a lot of nobility to my family Mm -hmm. in the sense of my cultural environment. So I really wanted to do that for my mom. And I knew if I did that, then I would also have a steady job and Mm -hmm. that I'd be able to potentially have an impact on the world. So that's kind of what I envisioned myself doing 
until I started doing internships in the field. <laughs> Basically until you started doing it. Yeah. <laughs> and at that point you thought, nah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And then so how, and this is the part of your story that I love the most because so the show is The Call and it's all about women who are answering or who have kind of gotten some sort of call on their lives. And initially when I started the show, it was to kind of show that it's not always this big, you know, spiritual, mystical moment. Mm -hmm. And yet for you, it kind of was. And Mm -hmm. I love that. (laughs) So tell me about the moment when you realized not just, okay, I'm not supposed to be doing law, but actually I know or think I know what I am supposed to be doing. Mm. So I did all these internships. And then at the end of them, I was left completely depressed because I was so disenchanted with the actual practice of it that I couldn't imagine doing it every day Mm -hmm. so after I fell into depression I was sort of like I don't know what to do and I wasn't really motivated in the sense of trying to figure it out it was kind of like a breakup you know Mm -hmm. I was Mm -hmm. like I don't want to move on that's a good way to describe (laughs) it yeah and one of my friends suggested that I speak to this woman and she was like she just moved here from Swaziland and she's a traditional healer and she does this and that. And I was like, I will talk to anybody. <laughs> so I did. I spoke to her and her name is Julie Walker. And I had an hour appointment. And in that hour, it was the first time in my life that anybody had actually mirrored me back to myself mm. in an authentic way. Mm-hmm. So a lot of stuff was waking up within me as I was speaking to her, but I realized that my whole life, my parents and my community and my culture had all reflected back to me what they think I should be or what they wanted me to be. Mm -hmm. And so it was very foreign to me, but also like the most familiar thing in the world when she started being like, hey, you're really gifted with products and you're really gifted in design and You get the practical side from your father, and you have this creative side from your mother. And she just really talked to me, and she asked me questions about myself that nobody had ever asked me before. Mm, Like what? The first question she asked, haven't you noticed that you always look at things and then try to figure out how to improve on the design of them? And I was like, yeah, actually, I do do that. (laughs) I do that. Like, how do Uh you know that? (laughs) Uh And it's something that I've kind of done my whole life but that nobody's ever acknowledged before. And I think that as she was saying this to me, it was also triggering memories of things. Like when I was in the sixth grade, I was supposed to invent something and I invented cordless headphones. And it was- You invented cordless headphones? I did. So my mom, you know, it was the 80s. My mom Uh had these huge pair of earrings. They looked like discs, like these pink rose looking discs. Mm And I took them and I described how you could be able to just put these earrings on and hear music out of them. And so I had this whole presentation in the sixth grade of how it would work. So it brought up all this stuff in me because at the time I was so mad at my parents and my mom. And I was like, how did you not see this in me? Mm. Like I could have been the one that invented cordless headphones (laughs) because I thought of it in the sixth grade and I really felt like I'd missed a calling. Mm, I was like, if I had been mirrored, like I could have been that one. Then um, she was like, you know, you should really explore product design. And I was like, what's that? Well, it's 
anything that has an aesthetic component, but also has to be really functional. And that was something you'd never heard of, thought of? I didn't even know it was an option. Like, I didn't know that there was a vacuum designer. I just never thought of it, or mm -hmm. that there is a designer that created like a cell phone, like somebody like a Steve Jobs. Mm -hmm. I didn't really know that that existed. I thought you had to be an engineer and you had to do this and that. And so I researched and funny enough, the number one product design school in the country was in Pasadena Art Center. And so I instantly, I signed up for all the- Because you you're in LA. Yes, mm -hmm. I'm in LA. So I signed up for all the beginning courses for product design and the first night I showed up to class, it was like my big aha moment where I was like, oh my God, I already know how to do this. Mm. The teacher can't teach me this. The only thing that I need to learn are the technical things. Like I have no clue how to draw. I don't know where to start. But I had the ideas and mm -hmm. they came so easily to me. And then I, I instantly noticed a difference between myself and some of the other people in the class. And I was like, wow, I really am who I think I am. <laughs> so in that gap in time between when she tells you this and mm -hmm. what you call mirroring yourself back to you, right? Kind mm -hmm. of showing you all these things that neither you nor your parents or anyone around you had recognized, but you knew they were true when she said them, mm -hmm. right? Between that time and the time, let's say, when you decided to register for your first class, did you did you question it? Were you nervous? Were you, <laughs> Or was it kind of like, did you have this moment where you're like, ah, Thank you. Product design, that's it. I got it. No. Okay. I was so... After I got off the phone with her, I was like, this bitch is crazy. Because <laughs> <laughs> right. that's what I would say yes. if someone said product design. So, I right. did. Everything she said, I was like, she's crazy. But the thing is that she had hit me in such a deep place mm -hmm. that it's almost like you're asleep and then somebody says something out loud and now it's real mm -hmm. like this entire time it's been in my internal landscape of things that I wasn't awake to mm -hmm. and so it's kind of like she woke me up and so it was this process of like dang now I felt like a responsibility to look at it now yeah and I had to look at it and because I had to look at it and because I had hit bottom I didn't really have any other place to go so I was like, well... Why not? Why not? Yeah. yeah, exactly. So it was a combination of not knowing what else to do and then also having this deeper thing of like, what if it is true? Mm -hmm. Like, what if this can really be real? Mm -hmm. I didn't even think having that kind of life was an option. Or So it opened up a sense of possibility for you that you didn't know existed. Absolutely. What that makes me think about, too, is like, you know, we're not all healers. We, we don't all have whatever particular gift that that woman had. But the value of really seeing one another and mm -hmm. kind of sharing what you see, because you never know how you being able to see someone and just kind of validating or confirming something that you see in them can actually change the trajectory of their life. Absolutely. When I think back to it, if it, there was one person in my life, like in my childhood, just one that would have been like, you're going to be something. Like mm -hmm. that saw that in me, mm -hmm. it would have changed the entire trajectory of my life. Mm -hmm. Because we're, we're so innocent through those developmental years of our lives mm -hmm. that we could really be swayed in any direction. And really, we all just have the desire to be good inherently. Mm -hmm. We want to be able to please our parents. We want to be you know, thriving members in our community. And so it really comes from a place of innocence. But then it could also be very misconstrued because when I 
I went through so many challenges. Even after I realized it, I had test after test after test where I was like, I'm leaving law to do design. Mm -hmm. Like, there's no nobility in fashion, which was such a a misconception. You know, it was like culturally because I was like, who am I? Okay, I have to get to the bottom of this. Like, why do I feel like the design of myself, my blueprint, what I'm good at, what I think I could contribute has no nobility. Whoa. And so, yeah, I really had to look at that. And then I came to the realization of, no, this actually, fashion is noble. Like, when you create something that makes a woman happier, that makes her feel prepared to take on the day or the world or that helps her express herself in some way, of course there's nobility in that. And then I started to see how there's really nobility in anything that people are called or feel that they're called to do. Um, And one of the things actually Julie said is like, because she had um, an extensive near-death experience and she said that she saw this uh, guy that was a street cleaner and uh, from the next world, it felt like um, it wasn't about him being a street cleaner. Like he was literally a caretaker of the planet. Like he was sweeping Mm. the... He was cleaning the surface of the planet, and there was, like, so much nobility in that, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And so it really made me think of things completely differently in terms of, like, success and purpose and calling and authenticity and the intention behind things and why you do them, why you Mm -hmm. don't. It pulls you away from, I think, um, kind of the stories that we've been taught as a function of being in a capitalist society, mm-hmm. right? Which is your value and your worth is determined by, um, you know, how much money you create, mm-hmm. what goods and services you provide, and how you function as a member of the economy. Yes. Ultimately a dollar sign, right? Especially so, in America. Exactly, like exactly. The, uh, Dr. Joy DeGruy Leary, who's one of my mentors growing up, she studies race, and she breaks down, like, in America, the highest value lies in the object. So especially with white America, it's always like, what do you do? How much do you make? It's always about the object, whereas in other cultures, the highest value lies in different things. Like with black people, it's in the relationship. You know, you could see another black girl on the street and say hi and not even know who she is. Mm -hmm. Like you acknowledge each other's presence. Mm -hmm. Um, Or in Native American culture, it's in the most great spirit. Or in Persian culture, oftentimes it's the highest value lies in the group. Mm. So it's like, what are you contributing to the group? And if you're not contributing, you sort of take yourself out to preserve the group. Mm -hmm. Like it's a very survivalist mentality. But in America, it's really challenging because everything's so based on the object that we feel like we are, we're God in a sense. Right. You know? Yeah, yeah. So so here's my question for you now. We'll we'll come back to what the journey was like after that. But as I'm hearing you talk about what really are values, right? Your values around success, around, you know, what is important and priorities and how you determine your worth in the world. And yet you are a successful entrepreneur. You are a business owner. Yes, you are a creative, but you also own a very successful business. How do you hold on to those values? in the marketplace that you have to operate in, in a capitalist society um, where there are benchmarks and metrics and goals that have to do with dollar signs and the market. Yeah. I mean, my business to me is sort of like my little micro society. 
So um, I really try to pull a lot of the principles that I believe in and incorporate them into my business. For example, I believe that gossip is the number one destroyer of unity in a group. And when you're working in a group setting, the most important thing is unity. Mm-hmm. So in my place of work, if one of my employees, if there's any kind of shit-talking or gossip, it's cause for termination of employment immediately because it literally creates a poison. And it doesn't matter if that's gossip about celebrities that you don't know or a customer that just walked in that you didn't like or about one of your coworkers. It doesn't matter. It's just not allowed because it's that detrimental to the group. Amazing. I or, wish we could operate like that everywhere. everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Or, for example, like uh, on another scale, like one of the things that I don't believe in are the extremes of wealth and poverty. So, in my business structure, all the senior level employees have a cap on their salary. So, regardless of how much my company makes, I won't make more than a certain amount of money. Okay. Because I don't need more than that. Mm-hmm. You know, so I only make what I need. That helps me to live a comfortable life, and that's it. I don't need an excessive amount of money. So the company can make that, and then the company can use that to invest back into the company, or you know, regardless of what stage we're at. Mm-hmm. So I think that there are really creative ways, and I think a lot of people are starting to incorporate like their values and translating them into business. Yeah, and it's interesting because in doing so, you're breaking a lot of... Um, I guess I'm doing air quotes. You can't see them, but air quotes. It rules, you know, that we are taught about how things have to work and have to operate, how business has to run. Um, and I heard before you said something, I think it was during an interview elsewhere, but you said that we have these rules that we just believe. We believe them to be true without testing them, without challenging them. And one of them you said was like, who said we had to pay our dues? What if I'm just it? Mm -hmm. And as soon as I heard that, I wrote that down because what if I'm just it? Yeah. So do you feel like you paid dues? No. I mean, no. (laughs) I don't believe in that. Mm -hmm. I just don't want to believe in that. It's funny. It's You're saying that there's a lot of rules in business that I haven't followed, but it's not even on purpose. I don't know about business. Like, there's nothing. I was never educated about business. I didn't come from a family that had a business or that knows anything about commerce. And I don't know anything about intergenerational wealth. So everything that I'm creating right now or developing is like I'm really learning along the way. But it's also to my advantage because I don't have certain rules. Mm -hmm. But I do believe that that shouldn't be something that stops me. Right. One of the things that I've noticed is all the people in the world that I really admire and that I respect always question the status quo, like, why? Mm -hmm. Why is it? And then when you ask the why, you're sort of like, yeah, why? Yeah. I think questions have the power to fundamentally reshape the world. Mm -hmm. The the deeper and the bigger and the more challenging the question, um, I think, you know, you'll end up in a place that is far beyond where you thought you would end up. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what's also fascinating to me about you saying, you know, 
it wasn't that I was intentionally breaking the rules. I didn't know what they were. I think in this moment when we're seeing women, but in particular women of color, mm -hmm. really dominating in entrepreneurship mm -hmm. and saying, I'm just creating things. I don't necessarily know what I'm doing. And yet that lack of um, credentialed knowledge, right? So it's not wisdom. We got a lot of wisdom, but that lack of credentialed knowledge is not going to stop me from doing this thing. The irony is that in the process, you're creating a framework for someone else. Mm -hmm. You are creating a blueprint then for someone else to follow in that. Yeah, absolutely. That was a part of it when I realized that I was doing that in a sense, that I was creating a path that had never been created before in my own life or in my family or whatnot. It felt like such a privilege, mm. you know, to be able to do that because we stand on the shoulders of the giants who have come before us. And it was such a privilege to be able to play this small little role of like showing whoever that felt like they had any connection to my story or any overlap that if I could do it, you could do it too. Mm -hmm. It was such a privilege and it still is because that's what it really is about at the end of the day is just like waking because I really felt like I was asleep before and hadn't that one person not come and woke me up or mirrored me in a way that would like wake me up to myself, I would still be asleep. Mm -hmm. I would still be doing the same thing that I was doing. And so I think it's funny, actually, on a different note, but same. Somebody said to me the other day, like, if you can't do it while you're broke, you can't do it when you're rich. Mm. And it really resonated with me because um, wow. that's how I started. You know, I just started making things. I didn't have any money. I just started making things out of home. And then it really was like a self-made business. It really took took on a life of its own and slowly grew, but I didn't start with anything. So take me back to that. So you've, you know, you've discovered this is what I'm called to do. I'm going to start. I, I got some questions about it, but I'm just going to do it. And so you start making things. Um, was there a, a gap between uh, what you knew you were called to do and the vision you had in your mind of what that would look like and your actual skill level, right? Like, did you, how did you go about developing your craft? Yeah, uh, there was definitely a gap, but I don't think I knew it then. <laughs> uh -huh. And I didn't know it until maybe like two years later when I would see people that had bought my pieces at the beginning and I would like cringe because I was like, oh, God, they have the one that I use this glue on or I use this thing that fades mm -hmm. fast or whatever it was. And uh, what I noticed was that people didn't care because they weren't really buying it for the thing. They were buying it because of me, because they know that I really love this and that I'm putting love into it. They don't care that it's, like, a little janky. <laughs> <laughs> right. You right, know? yeah. And so when I started at the beginning, when I started getting knocked off a lot, like, a lot of these big fast fashion companies started, like, Forever 21, and these people started knocking me off. Initially, I was kind of mad about it, and then I was like, you know... I think that there's a place for everyone and there's a place for everything because the person that's going to buy my thing is going to buy my thing because of me. Mm -hmm. And the person that's going to buy the $2 version of it is going to buy it because of that. And that's totally fine. And it made me think of I went to see uh, Basquiat's exhibit in Paris and I was standing in front of his paintings and you could just like feel him in them. Mm -hmm. You could literally like feel his energy in them and then at the end I was like I'm gonna go buy a print of this and I went to the museum you know store and I looked at the print and I was like 
this contains nothing. <laughs> right. This print. It's I was like, I don't want this print. It contains nothing. And then I was like, whoa, products actually really contain mm-hmm. the person that made them. And it really shifted my perspective on how I create because it became even more intentional where I was like, oh. Do you remember the moment when you realize as you're putting your love into these products and they're getting better and better and you're working on your craft and people are supporting you both because they love the product and also because of, you know, you, right? Um, Do you remember the moment when something shifted for you and you realized, whoa, A, I'm good, and B, I can really do this, like, this is a thing, this is a career. I'm, was it like a big flashy moment, like when a celebrity wore something? Or did, tell me, what, how did you recognize that this is it? Um, I've had different little, like, mini revelations about it, but oddly enough, I think I'm still going through that. Like, I still mm-hmm. don't feel like I'm there or I'm it. And actually just recently, like in the last year, I decided that I was going to really try to scale my business because up to then, I had sort of done everything very intuitively and I had grown from strength to strength naturally and I didn't really have a strategy in place. I've never done any type of PR. I've never spent a dollar on marketing. Everything has been very like grassroots. And I was like, this is cool. I could stay here for a while. And then I had an, like a moment last year where I was like, whoa, I really have a voice in this industry and there isn't anybody else that's fulfilling this particular void mm-hmm. in the fashion industry. And so I took that seriously and I was like, maybe I should grow my business, but then I had all these doubts about it. Mm-hmm. And then I realized that I had doubts about it because I had more shit that I needed to work through because what I had felt at the time was like if I take on even more work that I'm never going to get married or I'm never going to have children or I'm never going to have those opportunities. We talked about that when we first met about the kind of being a woman entrepreneur and all of the concerns and pressures and fears that come with the trade-offs that it seems as if we're making and maybe they aren't even really trade-offs but they feel like they are at the time. Yeah so I was purposefully staying small so that I could be more, I mean, I had all this kind of language in my head where I was like, if I get any bigger guys are really not going to like me mm. because I already get the feedback of like, you're so intimidating or whatever, and oh my God, which I hate. I hate. So much. And I, I don't think that. I'm like the biggest, corniest nerd ever, you know? But calling someone intimidating says so much about who you are, right? Like, if if you are intimidated by me, that is a personal problem, right? Like, that means you are easily intimidated, and there's some stuff you probably should work out. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But you'd internalized that and kind of kept yourself small for that, for those reasons. Yes, because I was afraid. I was definitely afraid. I was like, I don't want to be so big that I'm going to be unreachable or... I don't want to have to devote more of my time to this. Like, I don't want to be that person that this becomes my whole life. Mm-hmm. So how did you shake that? Um, I really had to go internal and, you know, really meditate about it and talk about it with my friends that do mirror me and, you know, put questions up against my creator and be like, I need answers. Mm-hmm. And all the answers that came back to me were like, no, no, no. I have a responsibility to grow this and... It's weird because I've always had this feeling that I was supposed to do something really big, 
But I've struggled with that every step of the way in my business. I always just get comfortable. And then I'm like, do I have to? There's something so gendered about that, too. Yes. Because when I talk to men who are CEOs or entrepreneurs or creatives, that's not a question that I typically, and I know I'm, you know, making generalizations, but the majority that I speak to, they don't struggle with the idea of getting bigger, right? Right. It's definitely a narrative that we've been taught and internalized as women that there is something to lose by being our full selves. Absolutely. Yes. Or that there is something. I think that my mom's voice, too, is sort of in the back of my head of like that really traditional Middle Eastern mom that's like, that's dangerous. Don't go there. You can't do that. Like Mm. women are not supposed to do that. If you go there, it's danger, danger, danger. Mm -hmm. And it's, again, like having to ask those questions of like, well, what's the danger? And then when you don't have them, you sort of fill them in with your own lore Mm -hmm. of like, oh, well, the danger is probably I'll be single forever. Right, right. Or the danger is this or that. And so you really have to unpack that every step of the way And it's funny, my close friends and I, we all have names for that alter ego that has that voice in mind, Smelody. (laughs) (laughs) Smelody. So every time I start talking like that, they're like, oh, Smelody's back. Like, get rid of, you got to kill Smelody. Yeah. But it's it's funny, you you said danger. Um, And it looks like, from the outside looking in, it looks like this growth in your business and you kind of pushing against this particular fear, Smelody, um, is coinciding at a very it's happening at a very dangerous time in our society, right? And I'm watching your brand at the same time that you're telling me you personally are getting bolder and bigger. I'm watching your brand also be more politically bold and bigger and talking, you know, and kind of responding to the times. Was there a particular call that you felt, you know, post-election or in this particular moment to make your Um, you know, beliefs and your values around the world and people and politics merge with your art? Um, Yeah, I hate to call it political just because I'm not a political person and I don't like partisan politics. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it's very us versus them and it's very divisive. And it's just caused, I mean, this election is such a testament to that because I think it's caused the biggest wedge in our history possible. Um, And it was all done by the Russians running a cheap Facebook ad campaign, you know, which is crazy is that that we're that vulnerable. But for me, it's more so just a human thing. It's asking those questions like, why have we turned literally handed it over to the most corrupt people on the planet? Like, why are we doing that? We have the power. And so I've had different messages through my work, and a lot of it has been like really trying to mirror women with these questions or these scenarios of like, hey, if I do this, do you see yourself now? Or if I ask you this, does that wake you up now? Or if you come to my store and you see this, do you see now? It's like almost setting up booby traps for girls (laughs) to like wake up, Uh especially women, um, men too, because of what's been going on in the world. I think that um, this whole idea of us and them thinking is like really what's killing us. And if we just thought about us as us, Mm -hmm. I mean, we have the power to take our world back. We have the power to create what we want to create. And it breaks my heart that we've chosen the hard route and that it's sort of unclear if we've even chosen that we're going to do it. I mean, it's my personal belief system that the world has had so many iterations. I mean, look at 
how many times the planet has literally kicked everybody and everything off because it wasn't being treated properly and restarted. I mean, dinosaurs, completely gone. And I think that we have this misconception that we're different, but we're not. Mm -hmm. Like if we keep treating the planet the way that we're treating it, it will kick us off. And I think that we don't see ourselves in relation with the planet as we are. I mean, if you walk into a room and somebody's been talking bad about you, you could feel it in the air, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's a different energy in the air. So what makes you think that that same energy that we put out every day doesn't affect the weather mm. or doesn't affect our environment? And so I really want people to take responsibility for that and to have a greater awareness that we are really in relationship with everything and that it's not just physical. We're not just physical beings. We have this spirit about us that's really powerful that also creates change and transforms this and it's alchemy at the end mm -hmm. of the day like we're very alchemical in our environment and to take responsibility for that yeah. like and it sounds like that is the ultimate call right yes that is the call and you're weaving that call throughout your work and so yes you're hoping that people hear this and respond to it and if it comes in the form of earrings or yes or cute kicks which i'm wearing today exactly um you know then then that's how it comes but that really is the ultimate call yes so the last question I'll ask you, um, when I'd read about, you know, where you thought you'd be, and I read about, you know, your early, your childhood life, and you said uh, that everyone at that point had an idea of who Melody was. And at that point, maybe it was going to be a lawyer or some nine to five, but they all had an idea. And then you had to recognize what your idea of Melody was. Now, at this stage in your career, at this stage in your life, and at this stage in you know world history, what's happening around you, what is your idea of Melody? Who is Melody? Um, my idea of Melody, ooh, that's I, so hard to talk about yourself in that way, but I think for me that I'm a, an inventor in a sense and a creator, and I feel like what I do right now in the form of my company is sort of my vehicle of how I serve the world. It's literally how I serve God. I feel like God designed me in this way with these gifts to do this thing and that the way that I serve him and myself and the planet is by practicing the expression of those gifts in any way that I can. And it happens to be through a business right now that makes jewelry. But if my business were to end tomorrow, it would still I would still make things. I would still create things. It might look different. It might be in a different capacity. It might be furniture or a vacuum or working on a cell phone. But I'm still that person. Mm -hmm. You're tied to the, not the company, but to the call. Yes, exactly. It's funny. My friend asked me this question of like, if there was no electricity, you had no Wi-Fi, there was a natural disaster, and you could just like go out into the street and connect with your neighborhood or your neighbors, like what would your role be in the neighborhood? And mm. she was like, if you could figure that out, that's who you are in the world. Like that's who you really are without like a job title or a whatever. It's like, what? which person would you be? Would you be the one that's like gathering all the kids? Would you be the one that's building the fire? Would you be the one that's, you know, like who would you be? And I really think that I'd be the one that would be, like, trying to figure out how to make something 
that would make people happy? Like, what could I create a space for you, or could I? <laughs> mm-hmm. That you'd be a maker. Yeah. Absolutely. I love that. Melody, thank you so thank much for this you. conversation. I'm like tingling from this. I really <laughs> appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks so much to my girl, Melody. This episode was produced by the lovely Erica Morrison, published as always by Man Repeller. And I'm your hostess with the mostest, Erica Williams-Simon. New episodes drop every Tuesday. And in the meantime, I love hearing from you. So make sure to talk to me on Twitter at Created by Erica, on Instagram at Miss E. Will, or, you know, you can just come hug me if you see me in the streets. Otherwise, until next time, keep loving, keep dreaming, keep fighting. And of course, Keep answering your call. Peace. Calling, 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 yeah. Calling, yeah.